0: Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. We appreciate it. A lot to get into, including the methodology of the Liberals and the NDP working together at the federal level. Of course they are, but they can't come out and say it. We understand that, right? And we don't want another election in the next two years. We can hope, right? We can hope for nice things like not another election for two years, and yet that frustrates Supporters of Aaron O'Toole dramatically. So much else on the show. Anthony Fury joining us. Alan Cross uh, talking about the continued growth of the story from Houston, Texas and the awful tragedy at the Travis Scott concert. What could change in the concert industry of anything? Or if this is this an isolated incident where multiple fingers are being pointed at different sources for lack of responsibility? Lots more coming up on the Toronto Today podcast. Again, thanks for finding us. Here we go. All right, there's more uh, to keep up on with Rick Westhead from TSN. He did another interview last night with the mother of one of the victims of Kyle Aldrich. There's more than two victims. I think we can be pretty assured about that. We don't rest assured about that. If anything, uh, there should be a relentless pursuit to figure out what else this person did. But these interviews are revealing. She also says something. The mother of the victim says something to Rick Westhead about Gary Bettman that I think you'll be interested in. I want to start here uh, this hour. By the way, um, Alan Cross coming up in a little bit. We'll talk more about the growing controversy. It's hard to believe that it's uh, not dissipating. Sometimes it's something hits the news cycle. You talk about it for several hours and then it's gone. And this one feels like it's gaining um, interest and momentum in, in, in part because we talked about the nine year old that uh, is in a coma in Houston from being at this Travis Scott concert on Friday night I mean yeah it's all tragic we're expecting to hear uh, about the ages and names of eight victims who are dead already from the crowd surge and then the lack of response to it I don't know if all eight lives could have been saved I don't know if this kid would not be in a coma with a quick response okay Um, we've talked about this with COVID haven't we in that Tell me what you're risk averse to and then decide, well, I'm going to do it or I'm not going to do it. And we all can have regrets. We're like, dodged a bullet there, put myself in a bad scenario in that one. I don't know. And very few probably do unless they were there and saw it. uh, what this concert entailed. Alan Cross will join us. uh, Anthony Fury as well this hour. But I want to start here when it comes to talking about political deals. I played you a clip last hour of uh, Justin Trudeau, where I think Justin Trudeau is at his best, and that's being on the attack. Now, when he's defensive, he's scrambling. He doesn't sound legitimate. Sometimes he doesn't sound sincere. He doesn't present as being practical uh, as opposed to dealing with the drama and emotionality of it. A lot of people like to reference his experience as a dramatic arts teacher, But they do that more often when he's back on his heels and trying to explain something. By the way, I'm going to, you know, appraise how Justin Trudeau handles and is able to uh, dig the knives into the conservatives. Aaron O'Toole, this caucus that wants to look into to do their own research, if you will. And it's not just about lockdowns and restrictions. You know me. I'm all for conversations about those particular things. We have not got everything right, not by a long shot. And there's a lot of reasons and politics, believe it or not, behind that. Uh, We got grown men and women afraid to admit when they got something wrong, so they just pretend, well, it never happened. That's not accountability, and that sure isn't leadership either. But we're seeing now talk with a minority government federally about the liberals and New Democrats making a deal. This, I guess, would encompass the deal that they couldn't really strike, In the year and a half before it was quite patently obvious by late spring, we were going to have an election and we were not only going to have an election. It was going to come before the end of 2021 and there was going to be some campaigning in the summer months and speculation. You know, Justin Trudeau was making the rounds. Here's an announcement. Here's some money for this. Here's some money for that. And we're seeing this patented political I won't call it a ploy because a ploy sounds negative patented political process to use some alliteration there with the Ford government right now in Ontario and that's their want to do that you can decide well these these this these spending influxes mean something to me and I'm gonna you know vote accordingly or you can decide that they don't and you can also vote accordingly but right just plain vote But we're seeing this headline in the Star this morning. Liberal insiders shrug as rumors swirl about deal with new Democrats. And that's Reza Patel and Tonda McCharles. They're really dialed in. Excellent connected federal reporters for the Toronto Star. Let me read you a quick little bit of this. And there's what you can say and what you absolutely should not say when you're a politician. And this happens probably in every walk of existence. And I'll relate that back in a second. But senior Liberal and NDP officials, to quote from this excellent story, have flatly denied there are any formal informal talks about joining forces. Some officials are telling the Star on background news reports about such a deal are, quote, torqued. First of all, anytime you can use the word torqued, talking about politics, I'm in. That's great. Jugmeet Singh told the Star in Glasgow, Scotland last week, uh, there's nothing on the table. We just had as any new parliament initial chats about making parliament work. But you know that there's more to the story than that. There's also more leakage on the liberal side of things than I think people realize. And I noticed that during the campaign, I could reach out via, you know, direct message to a couple of liberal MPs. and they, first of all, two things. One, they were quite confident in the process of going out and running for election again. But the two I ended up, you know speaking to, and I guess having some uh, communication with, were not pleased to go back out and do it. One was a rookie MP, and I will just say he or she was some kind of ticked that they, well, COVID happens, and what can you do about that? It's ticked off all of us, and they were kind of ticked to be going out and trying to keep a seat in what I would consider a tough riding and to get back out there again. That's not what they wanted to do. So there has to be some alignment with um, management. They always say management should speak with one voice. Take a hockey team, for example. You wouldn't think it's a good idea for the president to say one thing about the team's long-term strategy, the general manager to say something different, then the coach to say something different. You won't always be on the same page, but nor should you be. Do you think that a general manager, do you think Kyle Dubas and Sheldon Keefe should agree on everything? Maybe they should agree on more than what Kyle Dubas and Mike Babcock agreed on, but I digress. No, good. those discussions are good things to have. Do you think with a radio station, you're listening to a radio show right now, do you think the show host, the producer, the program director, his senior management should all agree all the time on what goes on air and what doesn't? I mean, there's protocol and there's policy, but you still have to let people be people. The the people in my position have to look and go, yeah, the, the management makes sense. Sometimes they come and sometimes there's a pushback and sometimes they come and they're right and I'm wrong. Of course that's true. You can do that in your household all the time if you're married, right? Win some, lose some. You gotta know when there's an understanding here. And I think the NDP are indicating that with those comments. Do you think Jugmeet Singh can come out and say, yeah, we got a little bit a bit of stuff going under the table. We want some stuff. We want pharmacare. We want greater dental benefits for all Canadians. Uh, those sound good to me, by the way. I don't know who pays for it, but those sound good to me. And what we'll give to the liberal government in exchange is is we'll support a lot of their procedural stuff, a lot of their bills. So we're not struggling, and you know and I know. I I don't know what the appetite is. There will be a poll at some point in time, and we'll overreact, or maybe even react, period, to the poll. Canadians want an election by this date because they don't feel the Trudeau government has a proper mandate. We're months away from that, but we're probably not years away from that. Like, we're having – you get that we're having another election – for let's say January 2024, you do get that we are having another damn election, a third in basically five and a half years. Four and a half years, actually, if I do the math properly, of course we are. So I think it's really interesting that the NDP is there um, and and they should be doing that as well. I would bring this back more provincially and say it's one thing to kind of organize below the surface, but these conversations, in 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 shadowy places probably should be happening with the liberals and NDP provincially and what I mean by that is you do have to get to the point where Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca have to have that element of trust that they're going to form a coalition government if they can't beat the uh, the Ford government and get their own minority that's got to be on the table. That should be getting discussed right now, some of the parameters of that. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it would demonstrate that they're organized. I think there's a lot of people still out there looking at where we're at with uh, the, the province and wondering, it, it, there are those moments where it feels like, well, it's impossible now for the Ford government to remain in power. But when I think about all the times we've said that about a government, all the times, it doesn't matter. And I've lived in the United States for 10 years. It felt impossible for George W. Bush to win the 2004 election. No matter who he was running against, Bush Gore was so contentious. 9-11, the response to that, people get clamped down with, you know, security issues. There's there's Homeland Security. There's the Patriot Act. And then there's the disastrous war in Iraq that uh, was ugly beyond belief in terms of political ramifications. And just to be blunt, a body count for the United States, OK, getting their tail kicked in after the initial surge into Baghdad and other major cities. But I've seen many an occasion where people are sure Khrushchev's third uh, you know, election win. There's plenty of times when you think someone's dead in the water and they are not necessarily. And it's one thing Stephen Del Duca and Andrea Horvath, if they are the leaders that their parties think they are and say they are, they need to get in rooms and discuss these things at a certain point in time. That's my perspective on that. Um, You can't plan too, too soon. By the time you have an election, you're scrambling. You're scrambling in the campaign. And you better be on point with what you want to say as a party leader. And you better have your MPPs and prospective MPPs aligned with you. And there can't be any excess noise. And we saw so much of that on the campaign trail with the Conservative Party of Canada. Um, they were rattled a little bit by the CPC. They were rattled a little bit by elements within their own party that they could not speak uniformly uh, and and earn the trust of moderate conservatives and, and liberals that wanted a change in any direction who didn't want to hold their nose and go in and vote for Justin Trudeau. That's their perspective, not mine. A third straight time. The idea, the concept uh, that our cases have gone up, there's no doubt about that. We've been discussing the fact that a case now, not necessarily a case in, well, November, early November of 2020, because we didn't have vaccinations then. There's a lot of people having to test for work. There's a lot of fully vaccinated, positive cases popping, people with no symptoms. Then again, there aren't. Um, So it's a great debate. um, and, And there's a lot of back and forth about it and about the border as well. We were talking about that as a big theme yesterday. It won't be near the story today that it was yesterday, but Just watching coverage of it felt like there was an initial rush. There's people that want to go for the long term, the snowbirds. They have got property. They're going, they're driving to Florida. But I don't think there's going to be very many day trips. And many of the mayors, uh, many of the Buffalo, Niagara Falls, Sarnia, Port Huron, they've pointed this out, Detroit's mayor. They've pointed out that they're just not expecting that. They're not expecting a family of four to shell out seven, eight hundred bucks for a, uh, a PCR test. Now, here's the lunacy of the policy, is that you could take the test today, go to the United States, and if you can get back by, if I do the math right, if you can get back by Thursday afternoon or Thursday in the late morning, y- you're fine. But you could have gone, you could have gone to an NHL game, you could have gone to a concert, you could have gone to a crowded restaurant, and they're not going to test you. You've got the negative test from leaving, you go to the states where they are less vaccinated than us. So there's a lot of back and forth, a lot of back and forth one way or the other about what to do here. Sure, there is. I want to welcome in the program director of public health and preventive medicine at University of Toronto. Uh, he is Barry Pekos. Uh, Barry, it's great to have you on. Thank you very much for the time. I appreciate it. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Happy to. I, I tried to articulate it as best I can. There's a real pull and push about this particular uh, PCR test policy um what's your observations of it and do you think it lasts for the long term
1: well the long term is uh that's a that's a very reasonable question because we're hopefully on the tail end of this you know the covid narrative here but but i think for the time being i certainly understand where you know businesses at the border or families i've got five in my immediate family Mm -hmm. and i had to travel across the border it was 1500 us dollars or 2000 canadian i mean it was just you know it was it was an impossible additional cost there so i certainly understand where people are coming from who want to you know get rid of that or allow rapid testing but the truth is it it's just it really is a policy decision are we are we aiming to facilitate travel make it easier for people at this sort of very challenging stage with the holidays coming up or are we still focused on you know doing our best to end the pandemic as soon as possible meaning you know mm-hmm. once we get those 5 to 11s vaccinated a couple more percent of our population And then starting the new year with what looks much closer to normal, hopefully. So it's a difficult challenge.
0: When I address that, the idea of going for a a day trip, bringing that particular test already, as opposed to stopping on your way back, which you could do with a longer trip to the United States, say, okay, we've had our fun for four or five days. We're going for a week. We're going to stop and and get the proof, which you would have to do for a longer trip. That, that to me makes more sense because you want to leave the United States with the knowledge that you're not COVID positive coming back, um, doing it in a day, day and a half. There's a little bit of a loophole there, isn't there?
1: You're right. I mean, it, it does make no sense and somewhat arbitrary. But the truth is, with COVID and, and with life in general, you know, there are just these arbitrary things out there that that, you know, they just they've just got to be that way. You know, why is it Mm -hmm. 10 days of isolation as opposed to 14 or what could it be 12? You know, there's, there's science behind that, but ultimately when you make that decision, you know, on either side, it's somewhat arbitrary. And it's the same thing with this, with this testing strategy. Um, Of course, people going across the border for just a couple of hours or one day, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's just a matter of figuring out a strategy that, that does make sense, that also protects the population. And we've, We've settled on this one because it sort of makes logistic sense, but but absolutely right. It doesn't make logical sense.
0: Are you are you surprised we waited this long uh, for the border that we we let it go for three months with Americans coming over? Um, but but again, with our you know more stringent regulations, many Americans decided not to and decided to wait. I, I think the border towns and the mayor's there and, and even in the city of Toronto, I think we say we didn't see the burst of uh, of tourism that we thought we would see. Maybe maybe we've got the reputation as being, well, Canada still very locked down and people don't know. I don't know if that's true or, or, or it's not true, but we didn't see a big burst are, are you surprised there was this three month gap we thought the americans almost would be more willing to have us before we'd be willing to have them because of vaccination rates yeah
1: you're right we we would you know for americans who want, really want to travel but also are really worried about covid certainly canada was a was a uh, attractive destination you know i can't explain it you know there's there's all these social dynamics having to do with with covid that we can't necessarily understand um you know i think from the a big picture perspective you know, businesses are hurting uh, and, you know, travel and tourism is critically important and critically important to our mental health. But but I think we're just going to have to little, wait a little bit longer, no matter which side of the border we're on, before we can really, you know, travel and feel comfortable about it for, for most people, even for those who are vaccinated.
0: Dr. Barry Pecos, our guest on Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Uh, he's the program director of public health and preventive medicine at the University of Toronto. When you hear comments from the science table and they reference cases, um, I, and and feel free to to correct me, if I say, well, a case now is not what a case was a year ago, there's a lot of other metrics we need to be looking at. We sure need to be looking at the RN number. We, lo- we need to be looking at how much testing we're doing and where that testing's being done. Have cases become a less significant um, metric by which we judge which way the pandemic's going?
1: Well, you're right that a case now and in the pre-vaccine era are very different. And the big difference, of course, is, you know, when we have a certain number of cases, we know there's going to be hospitalizations and we know there's going to be deaths. And that means, you know, our entire health system, not only our society disrupted. And that's definitely different now. However, cases are really important to look at because you know our, our metric of disruption right now in our lives is you know does my kid come home with school and that means the other kids depending on your jurisdiction can't go or you know I've got to have somebody in isolation there or, you know there's there's that degree of disruption of our lives and Cases are still a good metric of that, and some of those are happening in, in unvaccinated cases that are st- or people who are still ending up in the hospital. So, you know, cases mm. is a really important number, along with everything else. And, and unfortunately, in Quebec and Ontario, those are inching upwards. If you look at Canada overall, you know, it, it looks pretty good and flat because Alberta and Saskatchewan, who were very high before, have come down, fortunately. But there mm. is this worrying increase, and we're just going to have to see how that pans out.
0: I know with five to 11s, I know. Um, so have you've got five to 11s that haven't been vaccinated yet in your family or do you,
1: I do. I've got two that are vaccinated and three that are desperately waiting.
0: Oh boy. Uh, yeah. It, it, one of those scenarios, isn't it? Where uh, when we see that the that there, there's not going to be a mandate for elementary schools. And I think that would have been really, really tricky. I think that would have, if, if people really want a war, uh, they would have mandated five, five to 11s for schools. That said, what do you think the uptake uh, will be for, I, I would vaccinate my kids if they were six, seven, eight years old, I would do that. But I think it's a really, really tricky thing, isn't it? To tell the parents of a of a healthy five, six, seven-year-old, you got to do this or you can't go to school anymore. What do you think the uptake will be when we get there?
1: Well, I think we have some good polling data that suggests it's going to be you know, quite good. I think the wonderful thing about this pandemic is that Canada has weathered it very well because you know, the overwhelming majority of Canadians, as we've seen, are just really reasonable. So, you know, mm-hmm. and do look to the science. And so, you know, I think it's a good idea not to have mandated it right away. I think there are a huge proportion of people who are just, you know, mm-hmm. like myself, can't wait to get it, recognize how safe and effective it is. There's another big group of people who are a little bit unsure and, and want to wait a bit. And then there's, of course, a very small sliver that are, you know, absolutely not. right. And, and I think as the you know the, the 5 to 11 vaccine campaign has already underway in the U.S., it's gonna get underway, hopefully, here. And, you know, we're not gonna be able to vaccinate everybody at once. So once a couple million, tens of millions, probably around the world, kids are vaccinated, it's proven to be safe and effective. I, I'm, you know, quite confident that most other mm. Canadian parents are gonna come on board. And what that means hopefully is pretty early in the new year, we're gonna be looking at a very different scenario, certainly for people with children in schools, and it's which is you know still very stressful for people.
0: That's yeah, really insightful stuff. I got only about forty seconds here. Let me ask you about off ramps for for masks and especially masks for kids in off ramps. I put a lot of guests on that say, Boy, we really need that. And if you want parents to be encouraged to go get that vaccine. Tell them when their kid can, you know, uh, go into a store without a mask on. Tell them when their kid can go to school and maybe go to graduation ceremony in May or June without a mask on. We, I feel like we need those things for parents at a certain point in time or we're just just in a revolving cycle here.
1: You know, that's true. I think kids have, have become quite used to wearing masks. I mean, many of them uh, don't even remember a time when they didn't. You know, if we're talking about graduation in May or June without masks, I don't think that's outside the realm of possibility. Um, is it going to be possible to go into classes without masks at, at junior levels, you know, in, in January, February, probably not quite yet. But that's certainly, you know, what we're looking forward to on the off ramp.
0: Mm. Uh, Dr. Barry Pekas, thank you very much for the time. I loved uh, chatting with you. I hope we get to do it again. Thanks for getting up early for me also. Thank
1: you. Have a great day.
0: All right. Always uh, exciting to have our next guest on, although uh, in the guise of what's happened in uh, Houston, Texas, uh, difficult times. And if you love live music, this guy does. I do. Many of you do as well. So you tell me. um, These are tough conversations to have. We've all been at shows uh, where there's been a bit of a crowd surge. We've all been at shows, I think, where people, to be honest, um, have gotten hurt, I think, in Toronto and I think all across Canada outside of what happened at the Radiohead show and that was before the show took place we need to remember that from several years ago um you know, maybe we've been fortunate. Maybe these concerts have just been run differently. Alan Cross, of course, uh, our friend, uh, uh, has the uh, blog uh, Journal of MusicalThings.com, and he's kind enough to join me now. This has hit the music industry really hard, Alan, even from finding out about it Saturday. I feel like now we're Tuesday morning and we're all talking about it more and, and whether there's going to be even a, a sea change among promoters and customers when it comes to general admission shows.
2: Well, it's everybody's going to get hit in the pocketbook. The first thing that's going to happen is the lawsuits and there have been a bunch of them filed already against Live Nation and uh, the other people involved, Travis Scott and Drake, maybe a few others. Uh, the second thing is um, there is going to be a criminal. There are not security things um, the way they, they were supposed to. I mean, there are standards for crowd safety when you have a festival that big. Were the protocols followed to the T? The other thing is uh, the insurance situation. Now, every promoter has to take out a a huge amount of insurance for things just like this, for some sort of Mm -hmm. disaster happening at your event. So it doesn't really matter what happens uh, with, with the civil stuff is that the insurance rates are going to go up. This is how actuarial tables work. So that's going to impact the price of concert tickets because if everybody's paying more for insurance, um, somebody has to pick up the bill and that's going to be the uh, the everyday person.
0: I want to talk more about that uh, that show and that experience, but for Toronto concert goers, my recollection is with something as perfunctory as, as arena shows, Air Canada Centre, now Scotiabank Arena, is that for a long time we went away. It depends on the act and, and what they're expecting, the demographic of the audience. It, it, we went away from the floor being open for general admission. If you were going to see Fleetwood Mac, if you were going to see the Eagles, Peter Gabriel, it was all, all seats on the floor. Floor, but when you get acts in like Dua Lipa or Bruno Mars, they tend to open it up a bit more. Is is that your understand? Did we get away from doing uh-huh. GA shows on the floor for a lot of these bigger ones?
2: Well, what we did with GA floors was we uh, we um, limited the number of people that could be on the floor. So in shows that I've been to, what I've seen is that there is extra room on the floor. You don't sell a single bit of space. Mm-hmm. You, you leave room to move. That's usually been the case. The other thing we have with general admission shows is you you kind of pin the crowds. You put them into uh, their own, you divide out the crowd into their own little sections so that you have, if one section gets unruly, it doesn't spread to the other section. So that's, that's uh, another thing that's been done. The problem here is that we had somewhere between 50 and 70,000 people in the stadium, and they were uh, going to see an act uh, who, and this is Travis Scott, who has repeatedly, you know, told the crowd to get wild, to get crazy, to you know, make thunder, a whole bunch of stuff? So he has been in trouble before uh, when it comes to stirring up the crowd. There was a, a case in 2015. There was a case in 2017. If you go online, you can see a supercut of him urging the crowd to go crazy, uh, and that's what happened in this particular case. Uh, there didn't seem to be the pinning of the people in the general missionary. Well, it's a festival. So it was going to be general admission. Uh, you didn't see the, the crowd barriers set up the way um, you, you might have in other places, which resulted in this hmm. huge, huge mass of, of humanity uh, rushing forward, then being told by the people, by the guy on stage to go nuts, which they did. And they were wild up already because, again, they this, a whole bunch of these people stormed the gates earlier in the day. Yeah. There's video of that. So we had a, a, a situation, a powder cake situation, where people were getting crazier and crazier throughout the day. And when we finally get to the headline, 9:15, uh things just exploded. I,
0: I think about going to the first Lollapalooza I went to was 92. I didn't go to the 91 one. And I was talking about it yesterday on the air, how – you'd watch and that that show was so strange because Pearl Jam was the second act out they might have been on at one o'clock in the afternoon Eddie Vedder's climbing up scaffolding um with his Doc Martin boots on and you'd be like it looks a little aggressive for Pearl Jam for Soundgarden when they kick into Rusty Cage for Ministry when they go into New World Order I might go stand close for Jesus and Mary Chain but I'm avoiding the the big crowds I think we've all had those moments where it's like COVID, right? We're risk mitigating. This looks safe. This doesn't. And and that whole era in the '90s, Alan, felt like, unfortunately, a lot of slam dancing, a lot of a lot of moshing. You could easily get kicked, you know, in the head by somebody's boot going on by. I didn't love that era of being up close, but that's not what this is.
2: No, uh, I was uh, at Volapalooza as well. I was on stage, uh, side stage, looking down, and I remember thinking that uh this is what hell must look like yes (laughs) it it, it was it was pretty pretty intense uh i i don't know if back then there was again maybe i'm just a cranky old guy but back then there was a credo if you saw someone fall you pick them up Mm -hmm. if you saw somebody in trouble you went to their aid we didn't see an awful lot of that this time and you know uh Eddie Vedder has stopped shows many times if he's seen something going on in the crowd. Dave Grohl stops shows if something goes on wrong in the crowd. What we had here, and again, this is a very specific case, is that we had a guy on stage urging the crowd to go crazy, stopped the show twice and said, uh, you know, just, hey, guys, take it easy. Even as an ambulance was coming in, he kept going. Yeah. Even after the mass casualty event, Signal went out at 938 uh, they kept going. They finished the show at, at by at ten fifteen. So people were 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 being trampled. People were being squished. People were going into cardiac arrest. People, and the show continued to its finale. So that's another thing is is like what was the chain of communication? What was the chain of command? Who didn't see what or who, or who made the call to keep going? So this this is a very specific situation because we, we've all gone to these shows where we have these mosh pits and circle pits mm-hmm. and all the rest, of it, and we don't have people dying. What was special about this one that made it so tragic?
3: Yeah, the
0: a- the ambulance rolling through is a big one for me because uh, you know I I did I I empath I have empathy for uh, an artist if people are shouting stop the show that's a really tough call that's a really tough thing but yeah a flashing light an ambulance plowing through with people making way forward is when the show ends up getting stopped I'd ask you this do you think we tend to react now we're a society that takes one thing and they say well this happened it was an isolated incident but now we need to regulate the concert industry is tricky right different countries different promoters different venues it's, it's tough for it to be uniform I, I mentioned the who tragedy in Cincinnati which did that was a lot of the sea change for a lot of the early 80s general admission shows and making sure that people just didn't storm in and you oversold and, and everybody raced for a seat do you think this changes? anything
2: well there is uh there are several associations that deal concert safety so uh the criminal and and civil investigations will look at live nation and the other promoter the sub promoter involved and find out whether or not the regulations were adhered to if they weren't that's one story if Mm. they were and this still happened well that means to re-examine the situation and figure out how to make things safer going forward uh, this is not the kind of thing that we want as, as everything uh, recovers from COVID, but it could result in uh, additional regulations if it has been sh- if it's shown that the existing re- regulations did not uh, were
0: not adhered to. Have you got tickets for an arena show yet? What, what 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 do you got lined up?
2: Not me, no. And if I will be if I'm going to a show. Uh, I'll be standing at the back. I got caught in uh, something like this at a Pearl Jam show in Missoula, Montana one time.
0: Uh, And
2: uh, that was it. That was it for me. I don't need to be that close
0: well you, you mentioned crank cranky in age but I, I must have been a cranky 21 year old at Lollapalooza palooza thinking this is that's a, like i said i remember ministry coming on and, and a lot of people left i mem- my recollection is two things one a lot of people left after ministry didn't even stay for red uh, chili peppers um there was a huge ministry it was like seeing your your team on the road and that team travels really well like a soccer team but i but i also remember looking down uh, my friend coming back all scratched and bruised up after being there the whole sound garden said i'm like yeah like you're gonna have those bruises for four days i'm Glad it didn't go down. These are the kind of shows we went to in the 90s.
2: Oh, we did. And we we enjoyed them. But again, there was a uh, this idea that everybody was there for everybody else. Mm-hmm. And if something went wrong, you you helped that person in mm-hmm. trouble.
0: Alan Cross, you can hear him uh, weekday 7 to 8 on uh, 102.1 on The Edge. And, of course, the brilliant Ongoing History of New Music airs Sunday 7 to 8. It's great having you on today. Thanks for doing this. You bet. Anytime. Um, there's going to be a new Brampton Hospital. It's been needed. It's been desired it's been a long-term goal for a good chunk of time but peel region's getting asked to share the cost of the hospital and the hospital appears to be smaller than what what was first forecast i want to bring on the mayor of the city of brampton uh he's been generous with his time i think he's been a real leader through these covet times as well he is patrick brown it is great to have you on again thank you for making the time for me
4: greg always a pleasure to be on your show Tell me what, what
0: was known and what was not known. Was there any sort of element of surprise? There's the cost, first of all, to what uh, what, what Brampton has to um, uh, handle and, and shoulder, but there's also the size of the issue. Let's start with the size. Are, are you getting a smaller hospital than was forecast?
4: So, you know, I'm uh, all for... Uh Giving the government credit and uh, pointing out their mistakes when mistakes are, are, are made. You know, I've taken a nonpartisan role as as mayor, and mm-hmm. on a number of occasions, I've been very critical of the provincial government uh, during COVID on the lack of vaccines for hotspots and some of the closures that uh, didn't make sense, like playgrounds. But on this, you know, they they do deserve um, credit. Uh, you know, the, the original plan for the hospital was about a $200 million project. Uh, it was just going to be a, an extension of an urgent care clinic. Um, and they come back with an announcement, which is a billion-dollar project, um, the largest investment our city's ever seen. And so, you know, would I like it to be more? For sure. But no one's going to, um, you know, look down at a billion-dollar investment. We're getting... Uh, 250 beds, uh, full-service emergency department, very similar to what you see with the, with the the new Vaughan Hospital. Um, so, you know, I understand that with the provincial funding formula right now, they require a 10% local share. That's not a big surprise. Uh, back in my days when I was a, a very city councillor many moons ago, mm-hmm. um, I remember when we built the new RVH. You know, we still had to do that local share as well. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not surprised by that. Uh, I, you know, honestly, some of the criticism over the hospital, um, I feel, is more partisan attacks. I, I know the culture at Queen's Park is the opposition have to attack anything the government do. And, and on this, no. point, there's lots, <laughs> there's lots, a... right. there's lots <laughs> I agree with, uh, you know, and issues that are important that the NDP raised. But, you know, the local NDP, MPPs who are attacking the hospital, you know, they, they called me up and asked me for my thoughts. And I said, honestly... What mayor in the world is going to be you know, looking down at a billion dollars? This is good news for our community. Um, you know, it's a, it's a step in the right direction for helping us deal with our health care um, underfunding.
0: That said, I bring that up and it's long overdue so we can look back and say, well, that's, you know, uh, some time, obviously, for Doug Ford as premier, but an awful lot of time for Kathleen Wynne and Dalton McGinty as premier. What Dr. Brooks Fallis lays out, Brampton has less than half the cap per capita number of hospital beds compared to the average in the entire province. And, uh, Patrick, as you know, there's a massive surgical backlog in Brampton as well. That's one of the biggest in Ontario. And COVID has just exacerbated that. It's it it, it it's a bad scene.
4: Well, and uh, what some people don't know is that in 2006, when they opened Brampton Civic, uh, no one ever thought they were going to close Pill Memorial. And so they closed that hospital. And at the time, the health minister said, oh, in a few years, it'll be reopened. It never got reopened. And so here we are 15 years later. And that's been decommissioned. And so we're building the new hospital um, on the site of the old Hill Memorial. But that should have happened in 2006. And it's one of the reasons that we're in this challenging times that we are where we don't have the health resources to meet the population that we have. And so, you know, I got to give credit to this government. There's been a lot of talk about doing something in Brampton. But this is the first time we're actually seeing a significant investment in, in health care in, in Brampton's you know, in the last 15 years.
0: When, what, what was the year the, the your current hospital was built in, Patrick? 2006. So, okay, we're talking so it, 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 a it decade and a half.
4: 2000, it opened in 2006. The, the, obviously, the construction, you know, was a decade that preceded that.
0: Mm. Mayor Patrick Brown uh, joining us from uh, the city of Brampton. When I bring up that that surgical backlog, what I see with COVID cases is, uh, you know, everybody's a little bit aware. We've been talking about it most of the morning that there certainly isn't a need to panic. What much of the data says, and and I want, you know, the science table, I want some of the, the more outspoken doctors to acknowledge this, is some of the spread and growth in cases and we could debate what cases are now among fully vaccinated asymptomatic people till the cows come home but most of the growth is in smaller areas rural communities Brampton looks like it's doing well compared to many other places but I'm sure you're always cautious and keeping an eye on those da- on that data
4: You know during COVID we were hit really hard because we had so many essential workers at work every day not closed down and you know, crowded workplaces, but we're in good shape now. I think the severity of COVID in our community really, you know, sent a message to um, the residents that you know we have to protect ourselves. And our vaccine rates are vaccination rates are really high. You know, ninety percent first dose, eighty-five percent second dose, and the vaccination campaign. Um, whether you like vaccines or don't, it's it's worked from a hospital mm-hmm. level. I went from a hospital that we had. We were literally transferring out 100 patients a week to other hospitals. As far, as far as Windsor and Niagara, we were sending people by air ambulance because we were so busy. The hospital was so overflowing with, with COVID patients that every week we had to transfer 100 patients during the third wave. And now the hospital is practically empty. We have two COVID patients at Branton Civic right now. Only two.
0: That's unbelievable. That's phenomenal news. Like I, I, again, that's something. You know, I guess I, I understand that now and then. Um, you know, people will mention case counts in newscasts. What you just said there, that to me, that's that's a massive story at the front of a television newscast. Is how well it's gone in Brampton because more than enough people were willing to document it when it wasn't going well in March and April, right?
4: Yeah, and you know what I'd say in terms of case counts, you know. I don't even pay attention to that now. What what I pay attention to is the severity of the cases, because people who are vaccinated will will get COVID, um, but it will be mild. And and that was the goal all along, is to to change a a virus that could be fatal and very severe and and turn it into one that uh, that, that you can handle. And uh, and I, I think we're in that position that, by and large, the community is able to handle COVID right now because of the vaccination rates.
0: Patrick Brown, our guest mayor of Brampton on Toronto Today. When you bring that up about a 90 percent uh, rate for uh, getting the vaccine, that tells me that early days, and, and I think this was valid, especially in Peel region, access to the vaccine was was difficult. Getting time off work, being able to to figure it all out. I, I But I, I think it changed at a certain point from access to to a choice. That's phenomenal news because. People were worried about Peel region. People were worried about Brampton in terms of uh, of uptake. When you lay that number out, that tells me people deserve credit and, and should celebrate being so responsible.
4: You know, there was a shortage um, at the beginning of the vaccine rollout. And you know it was very evident in places like Scarborough, Etobicoke, Brampton, Malton, and, and North Mississauga. Um, but you're right. Right now, that's changed. Now it's a question of choice uh, Everyone can get a vaccine. There's no shortage of vaccines, and literally we've had pop-up clinics and uh, overnight clinics. We've done, we've created uh, platforms where there's no one that can't get a vaccine because we've literally had vaccination Mm. clinics at every hour of the day in every corner of the city, and. um, we're try- just trying to make it as easy as possible for anyone to wants to get a vaccine to get a vaccine.
0: I'm sure you'll be able to do that with, with the five to elevens once we get it to as well. I, I want to I can't play the clip for you, but I'm going to read you the quote. I played it yesterday from mayor-elect New York City Eric Adams. And this tells me leadership doesn't just have to be clearly at the federal or in our case, provincial level. Eric Adams was asked this about mask mandates at schools, not being able to see the smiles of our children. I believe that has a major impact. If we can find a safe way to do it, I look forward to getting rid of the mask, but it must be done with the science. Part of the development of socialization of a child is that smile. And I hear that all the time, Patrick, from pediatricians, parents, everybody. We're all fried. We all want like you and me can hang out and do this. You got little kids. They don't know any world except covid. So we want to introduce them to a world that doesn't have that getting the mask off is part of it when you hear those comments or, or do, would you echo those are you hopeful we get there soon enough
4: absolutely and I, I think the most important uh aspect of that quote was that you know let it be driven by science let it be driven by the medical advice and you know, no one wants to see um uh children in in, in school not being able to smile to, the, to to their peers so as you know as soon as we can get to that safe environment. Um, the better, you know. Yeah, I think of my own son who is uh, is two, and <laughs> trying to put a mask on him is, is, is near impossible. Um, and so, um, you know, I I really hope that we can move beyond this very quickly.
0: Where, do, by the way, where do you have to put the? I, I'm out of that era. So you where where does he have to wear it?
4: There are requirements. If you go to a gym or go to a soccer class, you're supposed to wear a mask, and it's just honestly, Greg, it's impossible.
0: That seems nuts to me.
4: Yeah. Yeah,
0: he's got So a soccer class and in, an indoor soccer class. He has to wear a mask.
4: He's supposed to. But let me say, none of the two year olds there are able to wear a mask. So it's, it's certainly not being implemented. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, those are the guidelines that uh, that are out there.
0: Wow. Yeah. Hang in there. Hang in there is the best I can say as a parent. And uh, thanks for your time today on the show. People like hearing from you. Thanks for having me on. Mayor Patrick Brown uh, joining me from uh, Brampton. Um. Can I start the show over and just talk about the insanity of a uh, the insanity? There's no other word. A two year old with a mascot running around playing soccer and save the hey, kids get used to it. Oh, they do. Do they? Okay, I got a lot of other examples of things we got used to that we never should have. And I can go centuries back if you want or just one century back. Um, all right, so here's the headline: Everything you need to know about Doug Ford's controversial plans for new highways in Toronto. Ironically, Mark had a, uh, a very um, opinionated guest pushing back on some of the criticism of Doug Ford about, you know, environmental extremists. He talked about that in his news conference yesterday. But yeah, highways. It feels like it's about highways: Highway 413 and the Bradford Bypass. It's a lot of questions. There's a lot of back and forth to set it straight. Uh, she writes for the Narwhal.ca. I'm very excited to have on on emma mcintosh it's great to have you on emma I'm a fan of your work thanks for making the time for me
5: good morning great to be here
0: tell me a little bit about your your observations yesterday uh with how this is being um pitched if you will by the premier of this province he says he's got constituents all over the place in this area that can't get from a to b on time uh and it's frustrating for commuters is is that's gonna that's gonna you know that's that'll resonate nobody likes traffic jams will that resonate with the
5: public I, I think the only way we'll really find out is at the ballot box. But certainly what's clear is that Doug Ford is making a big bet that it will. Um, I mean, if you've ever driven between the 400 and the 404 south of Lakeshore, it, it's not a great time. Um, it's, it's definitely congested. That much is true. But I think one of the real tension points here is um, is what science shows us. And that's that. New roads don 't actually relieve congestion long term there's a, a short period where there's relief and then they actually attract more drivers so um, it 's interesting to see this push and pull when when the science on this is very clear and has been established for decades. do you think
0: we have a different perspective about public transit post covid I hope we don 't and I hope we we all are learning to, you know, walk again, left foot, right foot, and regain our confidence. Um, I haven't I haven't been in Toronto to had the occasion to ride the subway, but I've been on the GO train a bunch to come in from uh, Durham region. And the first time you do it, you're like, what will this be like? And then by the fourth time you do it, you're like, it's the most normal thing on the planet. But do you think there's, again, I'll, I'll, I'll weigh it in terms of what constituents may buy into, there's more a, boy, safest place for me is, is my own car. Is there going to be that perception? And is the timing good for the premier and highways based on that?
5: Well, I think that in a a bigger sense, um, all signs seem to be pointing to public transit being a big part of our lives for the foreseeable future. And you can even see that in the four government's plans. For every dollar that they're spending on these highway projects, they're also spending a ton of money on public transit. And the consensus I've reached from talking to people on both sides is that a lot of people feel like no one solution is going to be enough to solve our traffic woes. They are just too enormous.
0: Do you look and say the opposition has like they this? They're serving this up on a platter that for a Stephen Del Duca, for an Andrea Horvath, pushing back on things like this, saying this is only going to lead to more congestion. It's bad for the environment. These should be easy bowling pins for for those two leaders to knock down. Should Should it not?
5: Maybe, but it's difficult, right? A, a lot of people in the GTA are very dependent on their cars because mm-hmm. there, there isn't transit infrastructure to support them not being dependent on their cars. And uh, it's hard to blame someone for that. Um, what we're looking at right now is, is like a, a decades-long failure to have enough infrastructure of any kind, really, to, to get around. And mm. it'll be really interesting to see um, what the leaders come up with to alleviate that.
0: Emma McIntosh is our guest, uh, Ontario Environment reporter for the Narwhal. A great read on the Bradford Bypass and Highway 413 up on the Narwhal.ca right now. Um, do you look and, and think, and it also is related to COVID. We've have we've had to take our eyes off uh, off a lot of different you know, balls coming in and say, well, I can only focus on this. I can only focus on that. And the environment felt like, you know, it's fallen by the wayside a little bit. We're like, well, let me focus on that. I'll, I'll eat less meat and I'll, I'll do this and I'll, you know, I'll install solar panels. I'll do all this stuff post-COVID. And I worry that, well, if COVID is endemic, we're losing valuable months and years. That's, that's exactly what they were just talking about at the, uh, at the conference in Scotland.
5: Yeah, that is a big concern for a lot of people. But I think you can also look at it a different way. Um, COVID showed us how quickly governments can mobilize to address a crisis. It also um, is prompting this huge economic recovery effort. And, you know, a lot of environmentalists say if that recovery effort is mounted in the right way, then we can rebuild with green infrastructure that will help us to get you a, a less hopeless place. Not that I think we're in a hopeless place now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I would never put words, uh, no, radio host would never put words in a uh, in a guest's mouth like that. So w- when we talk about the um, the timeline for this, this is going to take, like this is years past next spring's election. It might be years past the election after next year's election, right? For the Bradford bypass anyway.
5: That's true. The government is working on a round of studies to update the Bradford bypass um and it's 25 year old environment
0: unbelievable wow uh emma thanks very much for making the time uh, for coming on with me i hope we get to chat again i appreciate you coming on okay then this time every show we do what happened when uh this date in history november the 9th loretta milnovich uh, with us Sheba Siddiqui with us and uh the man dave bradley uh who will have the seven o'clock news by the way dave loretta's seen me walk already today so yeah I ran 8K in the morning, then thought I'd be riding in a golf cart, you know, slugging back a white claw, taking a, taking a shot here and there, hitting, you know, hitting an approach shot to the green. And I walked the entire course, but nobody's going to feel empathy uh-huh. when you come home and you're like, you know, you played golf. Yeah, yeah. You can't say you're tired when you get in the door.
3: Well, you, yeah, I, you're it, right. it, it's yeah. very difficult to pull off. Yeah, it's true. You can say you're tired, just nobody's going to listen. Are you it. the
0: driver of your family when you and when you? Oh, 100. Yeah, right. Yeah, and so when you arrive somewhere and you've you're you've driven as opposed to being the passenger seat, you, you're tired. Oh, why Yeah, it's oh, not absolutely. the same. No. Shiba, it's not the same experience for the passenger. You get that right?
6: Ridiculous. Yeah, I pay That's, attention. It's
0: not, there's probably science backing it. We want to put all these <laughs> doctors and scientists on. Let's have someone explain that phenomenon.
6: Sure, but you're wives are in the passenger seat directing you no and they're not you,
3: yes they are they're because not. you're going to get us lost by, by directing <laughs> well you that's partly sleeping? true is that uh
0: yeah my wife's a big car sleeper yeah, oh my god she's gone <laughs> within she's
3: like a baby like I turn on driving the around in a circle <laughs> yeah i turn on the seat warmer and it's like good that's, night
0: that's it yeah that's all it takes
3: <laughs> on this day november 9th national adoption day did you know that only 1700 kids a year are adopted in canada it seems pretty low. It feels
0: really low for a yeah, nation I'm of 30, thirty-six million people. Because um, and are there not still like massive wait times and red tape? And I, I don't know anybody who's gone through the process. I know my oldest cousin was adopted, but that would have been
3: in like you know nineteen seventy-two. Yeah, and I know, I know. A, f- a few people who were adopted, but uh, yeah, I don't know anybody who's gone through the process. My parents. I, I have a
6: few friends who have who have adopted, and they just say it's such a long and arduous process. It takes. Forever, it gets really frustrating, and um, it's not its not a good experience.
0: Now, you, you roll with some pretty, uh, you know, A-listers. Are these friends like, like what An- Angelina Jolie, uh, oh, Madonna? Oh, right.
6: <laughs> yes. Who's, that's are, exactly. they the, are they the yes, ones? That's what I'm referring to. <laughs> no, I have a lot of friends who've actually um, adopted from just different, actually, inter- international countries. So, you know, we're like Syria, even Syrian, a lot of Syrian refugees, orphans. Hmm. Uh mm. Yeah.
0: Interesting. So, in in uh in, I'll encapsulate this quickly. My parents, I'm in the car headed somewhere. I don't remember where. Baseball game, or whatever. And I'm 12, and I have, a, I have a I have a sister who's nine at the time, and a sister who's seven. So it's a busy household. And my parents got wind somehow of like a 15 year old boy, uh, and they're like, we're we're just thinking about whether we could give him a and they and they they are not missionaries, yeah. Like I don't. What's I like? I was. I didn't know how to take that at age twelve. I'm like, what? I'm not enough of a handful. <laughs> you want a teenage? You want someone to guide me, show me the way? They never brought it up again. It was like a one-week topic in our house. Really? But I was sweating bullets, Dave. That <laughs>
3: You're gonna have I'm to like, share your room. I'm the
0: heir to the throne here. Yeah, Come yeah. on. <laughs> I'm Kendall Roy. What are we doing? <laughs>
3: On this day, 1961, the PGA eliminated Caucasian-only rule for their tour events. 1961.
0: I guess I wow. wouldn't. I guess I wouldn't. Like, yeah, you think that's 36 years before Tiger Woods win the, wins the Masters. So you'd think it was long before that. I
3: would have thought so. Like every major sport team had integrated by 1951. So it was a further 10 years after really every, every other major sports team did that.
0: There was literally one black golfer that you'd watch when I'd watch golf with my dad all the time. The majors Calvin Pete was his name. And he was always on in the late 70s, early 80s. But a lot like Arthur Ashe with tennis, mm. um, you know, it, it was one of those things where it was just it was a rarity to see. And now it's it's the United Nations, right? It's Japanese golfers, totally. Filipino yeah. golf, the women's tour. It's like seven of the 10 top players are South Korean. Yeah, it's great to see the diversity uh, I in bet, that sport.
6: I bet Calvin Pete has some stories. Though. I bet he does. Oh,
3: yeah. 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 Awful sure. stories. Yeah. On this day in uh, 2019, actually, speaking of sports, the last segment ever of Coach's Corner on Hockey Night in Canada.
0: So I think I told this story Monday morning in the early part of the show. I remember seeing it live. I remember saying, I think this is a bigger deal than usual. What, what do you guys remember about sort of the Sunday morning leading in? And then Ron McClain talked Sunday night without Don Cherry. Mm-hmm. What, what do you guys remember about that sort of 40? And she, I think you and I did a show together on the Monday after he'd lost his job. I think I was in for Alan that day.
6: That was one of my most stressful weeks at work with Global News Radio, because every time we opened up the call lines, uh, people were very presumptuous, and they don't know what I look like, and they would call in, and they would just tell me on the other end of the phone, some very racist things about, you know, people that need to get out of this country and we don't have time for these kinds of people in the country and people are just, you know, it's not fair to Don and we have to stand behind Don support him and get, you know, get them out of here having no idea who they're talking to and what I look like. So it was a very stressful time for me at work, not mm-hmm. because of my coworkers, but because of the caller segments we were getting in.
0: Interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can see why that would be the case. I I, I guess I didn't. I didn't think he'd get fired. I didn't think he'd lose his job at the given time, but I thought he's got to lay this out. You know, maybe he's got yeah. a year left, two years left. Like again, it was the law of diminishing returns. He was 86 when this happened.
3: Yeah, exactly. I I think it was time. It was sort of that push that sent him right out the door. I remember the fallout from it. I didn't watch the actual segment, but of course, scrambled the next morning. Be like, what did I miss? What Would you miss? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And turns out I missed a lot. Uh, on this day in 2020, believe it or not, so last year. Pfizer released their data about the COVID-19 vaccine trial. They deemed the vaccine 90% effective in a trial involving 44,000 people. The rest as they say is history. I think
0: then we <laughs> I think then we wondered if we'd only get one shot.
3: Yeah, there was that talk and right. then there was the remember you had to keep it at a really really cold temperature in the beginning so everybody's building these freezers and spending That's a lot of money. That's what it was. Yeah. yeah. So it was uh yeah, it was a huge deal. It was like, well, I mean Great, it works, but how are we going to store it? How are we going to get it to different communities? And uh, it turns out uh, that you can change the rules as you as you go along. That's <laughs> well,
0: political commentary
3: there from people. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, as you learn more, that's all I'm saying. You learn Absolutely. more about it. So on this day, 1985, Jan Hammer's uh, "Miami Vice" theme is the number one song in the Billboard Hot 100.
0: That's my maybe my favorite part of the Wedding Singer movie is when, like. Glenn Guglia opens his car, and you hear that blaring from the speakers? Yeah. Like you would drive around with this song on and pretend you were Don Johnson?
3: (laughs) With the the shirt open to your navel? Is that uh, your (laughs) button-down shirt? (laughs) And no socks? (laughs) That's
0: how Greg drives around anyway. What are you talking about? There's no show quite like Loretta, have you ever seen Miami Vice? One episode of Miami Vice.
3: I haven't seen Miami Vice. I think I should. You should. Oh, yes, Loretta, it's worth it. Yeah, I learned how to play this in uh, high school band on the trombone.
0: Oh. Did you really? Not very well. Oh, you got to bring that trombone in. <laughs> I don't I have a
3: trombone anymore, but yeah, I think I almost failed that class. Also,
0: but. there were no racial stereotypes on Miami Vice whatsoever. Who are the drug dealers? <laughs> Colombians. <laughs> no. Every time. Like, they've never gotten a full apology. Then again, you know, the data kind of, eh, backs. facts. Where, where do the drugs come from? Kind of Latin America and Central yes. America. That hasn't changed. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We're back with a live show tomorrow, Wednesday, November, the 10th the day before Remembrance Day. And we will be, you know, acting accordingly, to be honest. I've got some great stories about Remembrance Day from what I remember about school assemblies. And we got to talk about that too, the lack of school assemblies for Remembrance Day. Hopefully schools are planning ahead. I don't know why we're not doing them outside. We've got a nice mild weather week. Why aren't we doing this? We'll talk more about it on the show tomorrow. Have a great Tuesday.